0: You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Hey, everybody, we got an awesome program for you today. We're going to be talking with Dr. Tim Mackey over at The Bible Project. We're discussing the Sermon on the Mount. It's an exciting uh, conversation that we're going to be diving into. Before we do that, I want to remind you to subscribe to the channel. Uh, we've got lots of content just like this coming out. Uh, Tim Mackey's been on the program before. We've talked about celestial beings in the heavens. We've talked about the tree of life and all that fun stuff. So so you can go back and watch those videos after this program. Uh, but if you want to be notified when we have guests coming on that man you're really interested in, make sure to subscribe to the newsletter, which can be found in the links of the description. It's the best way to get notified with all the different stuff we've got going on. So I've got Tim with me. I've got Michael with me before I introduce Tim. Michael, you're going to tell me a little bit about uh, your love and passion for the Sermon on the Mount.
1: I I love and am passionate about the Sermon on the Mount. That was uh, no, so I've, lame. I have uh, preached through the book of Matthew before and spent a number of weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm interested to hear Tim's takes. Uh, Tim, I love your stuff with the Bible Project and mm-hmm. uh, listen to it with my kids. That's uh, one of the things we do for family Bible study because I, mm-hmm. I like the way... Um, in fact my favorite commentaries are all the always the ones that don't just focus on like the bark of the tree but help me see the forest like they follow Mm. the storyline you do that really well but also Mm. the bigger storyline of scripture and pointing to jesus those are like the two big ones Mm. to me so Mm. bible project does a phenomenal job at that and i i love using that in our family bible studies as well as for personal edification and Mm. um, Mm. and then it's always fun to interview you because i feel like i'm talking to a cartoon so that—that's
2: <laughs> messed up. <laughs> that's, a new, that's a new one. I am so just, used to that, hearing your voice sure.
1: behind an illustration. <laughs> yeah, A little
2: yeah. so. sense in our. But it, it would be okay world.
1: for me if you said, like, whenever you hear my voice, you just picture like a deer with sunglasses.
2: <laughs> there, there you go. I mean, for well, a video at this audience, moment, I'd, you would I see that. one of those right behind your head, so (laughs) that's
0: right. (laughs) Well, Tim, for people who are living under a rock and aren't familiar with the Bible Project, maybe you should start off telling us a little about yourself and your ministry before we talk about Sermon on the Mount stuff.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, It's good to be here talking with you guys. And let's see, right now in my least vocational life, um, I'm working on a project with my friend, John, uh, called the Bible Project. And we started it almost 10, 10 years ago in the spring. We'll turn 10. Um, which is the age awesome. of one of my sons, crazy. Um, so we began making by short uh, by making short explainer videos uh, for books of the Bible and then themes that run through the Bible as a YouTube channel that's how we started life and then um, we started recording all the conversations that we had in the making of the videos and that became our podcast, which is now a big part of what we do. And then I started uh, teaching classes, that I used to teach at a local seminary and just thought, well, what if we taught them and then made all that Bible goodness available for free to our audience? And so we've been doing that for a few years. And so now it's kind of like a multimedia Bible education resource that's available for free.
0: Yeah, that's what we do. it's fantastic. And, and like Michael said, both the podcast... Uh, and the animations that you guys are doing I think are are fantastic you know I send them around constantly when people have questions about things I, I can often just reference a quick video or send a longer podcast series mm. even that answers mm. this question so you're yeah. super thankful for the stuff that you've done in resourcing the body of Christ well let's talk about Sermon on the Mount yeah. what is the Sermon on the Mount give us some cultural context historical context when does it happen um, yeah. how is it written yeah. is there any is there any fancy way that it's written so, so so that we can see the forest through the trees as
2: it were proverbially? <laughs> Um, oh, man. Okay, sure. You just you just gave me five wonderful questions, like bound up in one. Um, so the Sermon on the Mount is a traditional name to refer to three chapters in the Gospel according to Matthew in, in our Bibles. And it's a long speech. It's actually the first uh, speech given by Jesus in Matthew's account of the story of Jesus. And um, the context he provides for it um, it's not called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's presentation. Um, Jesus, in the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 4, just um, went through his wilderness testing and then went up to his home region in Galilee. And we're told that he went around announcing uh, the good news about the kingdom of the skies, the kingdom of God. Um, he was telling people to change, change their life direction, to repent, turn around because the kingdom of the skies is at hand, has come near. And then he, we're told that he went around to villages in Galilee, teaching uh, the good news of the kingdom, announcing it, and then healing sick people. And then he went up on a hillside and opened his mouth and gathered his followers and said, and then you get uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So um, it's the first block of Jesus' teaching. And really, I think Matthew has given us his title for what this first speech is, uh, which is the good news about the kingdom arriving here on earth as it is in heaven. Um, so we call it the Sermon on the Mount. I think Matthew's title is a little more exciting. Um, so what I think what Matthew's done is he has brought together, um, a Sort you can think of it many ways. One silly way is like it's the greatest hits of what Jesus said when he walked into a village in galilee like what did he say what kinds of things would he talk about what did it mean to hear jesus announcing the good news of the kingdom of god and matthew provides this uh, speech what's interesting about this speech is you, um, you know there's four gospel accounts in the new testament um and then three of them are really similar and in some way come from the same source traditions and this is a centuries old conversation among biblical scholars, but uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all really closely related in a special way. And what's fascinating is you can find many of the same teachings that are in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 in Mark and in Luke, but they're scattered throughout different parts of those stories. And so um, this has been a point of debate in uh, among b- biblical scholars about Matthew. Did Jesus are we getting like Matthew was like transcribing as Jesus like said it one day, um, or is this uh, the fruit of Matthew who heard Jesus give some version of this talk thirty-seven different times? Because we're told that's what he would do as he went into each village, and so, um, and that this is Matthew's compilation uh, of the things that Jesus would say. And people, you know, there's strengths and weaknesses to each of those views. But either way, it represents um, Jesus's core statement. About what he uh, thought the implications were of God's kingdom arriving in heaven uh, from from heaven here on earth, about what what is uh, what, what, how should people respond uh, as he's calling people to follow him and form communities of his disciples, what, how did he expect them to live? And so uh, really it's Jesus, it's like a manifesto of the kingdom of heaven arriving here on earth. And because it's first in Matthew's gospel, it's had an extraordinary influence uh, on the history of Christian thought, ethical thought, um, because it really is the first block of teaching you come across when you read, start reading the New Testament from page one. And so it's also some of the most influential words that Jesus uh, ever uttered. And they kind of are like the essence. If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus 101, Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is the place to turn. There's a lot more to be said, but I just put out a few things right there.
1: Okay, sure. Well, so Jesus goes up the mountain and he begins this teaching. Mm -hmm. And there are some scholars that will say, well, like, hey, just as uh, Moses went up on a mountain and gave his law, Jesus gives his law Mm -hmm. of the kingdom, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. whenever he says, you know, you've heard it said, but I say, you've heard it said, but I say, he's showing that... (laughs) He speaks as one who has a greater authority than Moses, and the book, and the the sermon even ends. People saw like he spoke with the, an authority beyond the scribes yeah. and the Pharisees. Yeah. And so there's one argumentation that's like, "Hey, you have like Old Testament law, but." But now in Jesus, he takes it to a whole new standard. It's, it's not just don't murder, it's don't hate, it's not just, <laughs> it, 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 or don't say raka, you know. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. not just don't commit adultery, it's also don't lust in your heart. And so people are like, so Jesus is increasing the standard. The standard of the disciple is higher because Jesus mm-hmm. is our greater Moses, and we have a greater lo- revelation of love and, mm-hmm. and what God's reign is supposed to look like, et cetera, than they ever had in the Old Testament. Then you have these other guys who come and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Like that mm-hmm. command to not lust is actually in the Old Testament too, Proverbs chapter mm-hmm. 6. Uh, do not lust in your heart after her beauty, and do not let her captivate you with her eyes, for the prostitute mm-hmm. reduces you to a loaf of bread, etc. And so, you know, they're saying... I mean, the Old Testament said don't commit adultery and don't lust. So Jesus isn't adding to or he, he, he's not um, creating a whole like new teaching. He's clarifying the wrong teachings of the Pharisees and the scribes and, and other people who had kind of misinterpreted things. So uh, tell us, do you see one side of that? This is this is like a, a really new thing or another side. He's clarifying the old thing or even a blend between them.
2: Hmm. Yeah, um, I think there's, that's a, great, that's a great question. I think there's elements of truth that both views have their finger on. Um, and, but maybe by focusing in only on that one aspect of what Jesus is doing in the sermon, it might distort the whole if you don't find a way to integrate both. So um, Matthew has been really deliberate from the first um, stories about Jesus, even the birth stories, trying to present Jesus as a new Moses type of figure. Um, and that happens from his, from his birth story onward where um, he flees to Egypt because uh, there's a, a king killing babies in his own homeland who wants to kill Jesus. Uh, so it, it, um, he presents Jesus's flight to Egypt, fleeing Herod, who's killing the babies. All of that is set with these little verbal uh, links Back to the story of Pharaoh killing the Hebrew babies, but Moses um, uh, escapes and ex- is exiled out of the land um, later on. And so Matthew's already setting up Jesus as um, uh, a new Moses-type figure. Um, same with the 40 days of testing in the wilderness, um, and then he quotes from Moses's speeches in Deuteronomy every time to respond to every test. So... Already, Matthew set up that portrait. So when Jesus goes up to the mountain and he begins talking about the laws given through Moses at at Mount Sinai, that's uh, uh, culminating a theme and a comparison that Matthew's made already. But the question is, what's the nature of the comparison with Moses? Is it saying that um, he's replacing Moses? Is it that Moses was cool, but actually you know, kind of a loser and like Jesus is actually really the good guy. Um, so it doesn't seem like um, it's a contrast. It seems like um, the type of relationship that Jesus has to Moses and that his teachings have in order to the law. Actually, Jesus d- addresses this issue directly um, right after the introduction with the famous Beatitudes. Um, and then he talks about who he and his kingdom crew are, he uses three metaphors. Uh, he says, y'all are the, uh, the salt of the land, um, y'all are the light of the world, and y'all are the city on a hill. And in those three metaphors, Jesus is uh, pulling on three threads that come right out of uh, the Torah and the prophets, Israel scriptures. Salt is one of the main metaphors used in um, Leviticus and Numbers for the, God's long-lasting covenant with Israel Uh, because salt i mean people used it for seasoning but for the most part salt played a role in preserving food for a long time which is pretty cool because humans need food to survive Um, so salt was associated with making things last a long time and so the idea of god's long lasting covenant and then he uses two images from isaiah scroll saying um y'all are the ooh, what's the what what was that what was the balloon what was that
0: i have no clue what that is or where that's coming from
2: it's bizarre
1: i i did you get like a balloon virus on your e josh don't
0: it must be guys i have no clue (laughs) i clicked nothing
2: I mean, what's going to pop up next? That's what I want to know. Talk more about
0: celebratory things. Maybe it's... (laughs) I I, I generated... I'm going to look into my settings and see if I can turn that off, but keep going.
2: Okay, all right. That was so funny. Maybe I thought Uh, it was some like new type of emoji and you're trying to encourage me like oh that was a good point about the salt <laughs> <laughs> that's what oh. it was
1: that's what it was yeah for those uh, who are listening to this instead of watching balloons oh. just flew up on the screen while tim was talking so we're kind of like what yeah. is
2: going on and none of us we <laughs> okay. system
0: hacked I, we we interrupted you tim to no, digress you're, good, you're good. These are okay all right so light, the, salt the, the, the hill.
2: jesus has pulled these two images uh from the scroll of the prophet isaiah um which depicted the future hope for God's people, Israel, as to be God's covenant partners who spread his blessing among the nations. That's why God partnered with Israel long ago in the first place. And Israel, throughout the story of the Hebrew Bible, did a pretty poor job of that. And so Jesus is coming and saying, the vision of Isaiah about the city on the hill, a new Jerusalem, shining God's light and life out to the nations. That's what's happening right now as I'm forming this crew. So, Jesus has already set up his relationship to Moses and the prophets that he is bringing about through his teaching and forming of communities, his announcement, what his life is going to be about. And ultimately, he has in mind, uh, as you read on, his coming sacrificial death on behalf of sinful Israel and his resurrection, that all of this is going to fulfill. And that's the last. Uh, way he sets up the relationship with Moses in Matthew in the sermon Matthew 5:17 he says I didn't come to set aside the Torah and prophets but to fulfill it so I think I guess the shorthand way would be I, th- I think his relationship to Moses and his teaching to the laws is a fulfillment approach in other words that the the wisdom the the righteousness and justice of God was revealed in the laws that he gave to Israel through Moses And those laws were righteous and just and good, uh, but Israel consistently failed to live by them. And that resulted in um, their exile from the land and becoming uh, subjugated to other nations and so on. And so Jesus is claiming he's arriving to bring that story of the covenant partnership to its fulfillment and to create a renewed Israel who can see the deeper wisdom of God underneath the surface of the laws, and then actually live uh, in the name of Jesus uh, to fulfill those laws and become God's covenant partners. I think that's what Jesus is saying. So when he says, you've heard it said, and I say to you, even there's a little, there's a little hinge word in Greek there, you've heard it said, and the Greek word is de, and then I say to you. And that Greek word is very flexible. Uh, it can mean it can sometimes mean a contrast based on context, but it can also just be uh, like in addition to or and. So it could equally be translated: "You have heard it said, and I say to you." Um, or if you think there's a contrast going on, "You've heard it said, but I say to you." And so we give six case studies. To, uh, six? I should have four. There you go. Six. You <laughs> give six case studies on what it means to fulfill the law. And what he doesn't say is, um, I've come to fulfill the law, so therefore they don't matter anymore. Uh, What he says is that he's calling his followers to a life of doing right by God and neighbor that surpasses anything that Israel's current teachers are offering, which he calls the scribes and the Pharisees. So uh, I I think, and then he gives six case studies to show what he means. Um, So we could talk about those, but on the whole, that was not a very concise response, but on the whole, I think a fulfillment storyline approach makes the most sense of how Jesus talks about his own teachings. Well, let's
0: unpack that idea of fulfillment, and, I, and I'm going to keep, I, I don't mean to belabor the point and keep pitting these two positions yeah, of great. Jesus wants to get rid of the law of Moses, and, or Jesus uh, is just, you know, showing the heart of the law of Moses, but uh, mm-hmm. if I'm going to push this illustration a little bit harder. Matthew Hmm. 5, the verses that you were talking about, I think it's like 17 Mm -hmm. through something or other. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, Jesus is saying, Hey, uh, I didn't come to fulfill the law, right? Or I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And he basically says like, not, not an iota, not not a, not a comma, right? Not an accent mark is going to be removed. I'm not, I'm not trying to remove nothing. And yet, When he fulfills the law, it seems as if things change with the law. Mm. It seems mm. as if the sacrificial system is no longer needed once Christ is sacrificed. Mm. It seems mm. as if Gentiles who are kind of admitted to the covenant community no longer need to be circumcised or follow dietary laws. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, some people who are going to argue this this radically changes the law, wh- what Jesus is preaching, and the mm-hmm. fulfillment language is is kind of shadowed there in in the Sermon on the Mount. But they'll argue but it's really fully explained in the New Testament where we see that there is a fundamental change from the Mosaic law to what we have in the New Covenant. So uh, mm-hmm. could you maybe unpack some of that?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. These are, all the, these are all the questions, man. These are all the best ones. Um, so maybe one, you could answer that question in like a phase one approach, which is in the story, up to the story, let's just stick with the narrative progression of Matthew's account so far. So he, Jesus hasn't died and raised from the dead yet. Um, and uh, f- the mission has not gone out to all of the nations yet. His announcement, as he says, just a few chapters later, don't to his disciples, don't go out to the nations yet. Well, that'll come at some point, but right now we're just focused on the c- God's covenant partnership with Israel, the lost tribes of Israel. He calls them, or excuse me, the lost sheep of Israel. So, um, I, th- I think what Jesus, at least what he says he's doing, is he is calling Israel to covenant faithfulness, um, to God, the wisdom of God revealed in the laws of the Torah. So in that sense, he is doing the same thing that Jeremiah or that Isaiah or Ezekiel did like the prophets uh, were of old, except they are at, Jesus is coming at a different point in the story where Israel has lived for centuries under foreign occupation, um, and the prophets interpreted that, subjugation to other nations as a, as a punishment, as the consequences for their being um, unfaithful to their covenant with God. And so um, as Jesus is there going around Galilee, what he presents his message as essentially is Israel has never actually been fully faithful to the covenant ever. So like it's as if Jesus is saying, for the first time, we're, it's happening. Like the thing that never happened that led to all the destruction of the last few centuries. Like I'm here and it's happening and it's like game on. Um, so in that sense, I think it means fulfillment in that the whole storyline of Israel and God is told in the Hebrew Bible is truly coming, Jesus is claiming, to to its culminating moment. And because um, the whole point of the biblical story was for God to partner with human partners, and if they live by his wisdom... They become his images of wisdom and, and uh, rule and blessing and stewardship here on earth, mirroring God's heavenly rule and wisdom. So uh, when Jesus gives his six case studies, and they're actually, they're really important, the six case studies, because he defines what he means by he's calling people to live by a greater righteousness. So the first two, um, he just quotes from the Ten Commandments, do not murder and uh, do not uh, commit adultery. And he doesn't contrast the law. He doesn't say, you have heard it said, like, do not murder. But I say, you can murder. Like, he doesn't set his teaching in contrast. What he does is he says, so what, what he poses his question, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And then what he starts talking about is how you know, murder, you're liable like in a court of law. Um, if you murder someone, and that, that's good, and that's right, and that's just. And and then he, he it's so wonderful, the examples that he gives. So then he says, if you call somebody in, uh, a moron, it's the Greek word more, from which we get the word moron. He said, actually, somebody who just name calls another person will be guilty of the Sanhedrin, like the highest court of the land. I, uh, and he upset even more. He says, even if you just like call someone empty head, like rakka, which means empty um you'll be josh guilty. calls me that sometimes <laughs> so, so be not. careful no, it's not often i don't
0: always do <laughs> it <Yeah, laughs> uh- he is saved in my phone as raka but i love it
2: i <laughs> love it um so then he uh it's an even less intense slightly less contempt contemptible like thing to call somebody em- empty head um, but then he says you'll be guilty of the fire of Gehenna, so um, which is the Greek word that gets translated as hell in our English Bibles. So notice how the offense goes from murder to pretty mean thing to call somebody to a, like a well, it's not it's not a compliment, but it's, <laughs> it's not the worst thing you can say to somebody. So like the offense gets less intense, but the consequences Jesus talks about get more intense. So what he's, it seems like what he's after is that there's some core disposition of the heart that whether you are making a slight jab at somebody, whether you are really meaning to publicly insult them, or whether you take someone's life, it seems like he wants us to see that the same high stakes situation is uh, is, is underneath all of those. There's some common denominator. And what's that common denominator? And this was actually Dallas Willard. It wasn't even a New Testament scholar. It was Dallas Willard and just his his wonderful book, Kingdom uh, Conspiracy, which a third of it is just exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. And he talks about how the core disposition of the heart towards another human that underlies all of those is essentially a devaluing or a contempt for the dignity of another that gets expressed in the slight jab, in the public insult, or in the ultimate expression of devaluing someone's life and dignity is to take their life altogether. And it seems like Jesus wants his disciples to see not just like, "Don't murder," and if I live my life without killing anybody, congratulations. Um, but the fact is, is you can go throughout your whole life and really, really. Um, have no regard for the life, value, and dignity of other humans demonstrated in all these other ways. And somehow Jesus thinks all of that deeper stuff should be what we're thinking about when we hear the command, do not, do not murder. And I think that's the lead example, and then he gives six more. But it seems like in all of them, what he's countering is essentially a shallow under-reading of uh, God's laws given on, on Mount Sinai. Um, that each one of the laws is meant to point us uh, to some greater, deeper, heart-searching journey um, where we uh, confront uh, our, our core desires and our dispositions towards other people. And so that's where he goes with, uh, you know, do not commit adultery, but then he takes it to like how, particularly he targets how men stare at other women and fantasize about them. Um, he targets in the divorce and remarriage about how in their culture um, uh, there was a majority view among the rabbis of his time that Jewish men could divorce their wives for any cause whatsoever. Um, and so he counters that uh, and about what, what that practice uh, means about what those men think about the value of their covenant partners uh, in Israel at that time. He talks about enemy love. He talks about how we distort the truth to take advantage of other people um, through oaths. And then he talks about non-retaliation. In each of them, he's not saying the opposite of what the laws say, but he's also not just cranking up the volume to say like, well, Israel didn't do good, so we got to do better. It seems to me like he's deepening. He's doing wisdom reflection on what the laws of the covenant um, were, were all about anyway. So that's one way. The case studies really are like the double click on what he means by fulfilling the law. But there's a lot more to talk about in those case studies. I just did a brief survey. Okay.
1: Well, let's maybe dive into, let's go with the oath one. Okay. So I'll play devil's advocate here. Please. Uh, Someone might, uh, like if I was to push for the opposite view, I might say, Well, hey, in the Old Testament, like Moses actually spells out here is how you're supposed to do oaths. And then Jesus comes along and he says, don't do oaths. And So the person who has more of a Jesus is giving a new view, not a clarification of the old view. Somebody who's coming from that perspective, they're going to look at the oaths and say, that looks new because it looks like it actually contradicts what Moses says. So could you maybe uh, zoom in a few times on that and help us see kind of how you would understand it?
2: Yeah, totally. That's great. It's a great example. Um, so it, it's actually, it's analogous. The oaths are an, uh, similar to a question that Jesus gets asked later in the Gospel of Matthew about divorce. Um, and so I'll, I'll kind of talk about them similarly, just to, but as a quick for, foreshadow. In Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees come testing Jesus, asking him about divorce. And they say, you know, Moses commanded that uh, if a guy's going to get a divorce, he you know, has to write, have a certificate of divorce written. And uh, what Jesus goes on to say is that, no, 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 like if uh, it's because of the hardness of the human heart that Moses and that God through Moses allowed divorce in the first place, haven't you read uh, in the beginning? And then he quotes from Genesis and talks about the Eden ideal. Of covenant marriage partnership between a man and a woman there in the Garden of mm-hmm. Eden, so I think there's something similar going on with oaths in terms of um, the the place that Jesus quotes from actually um, isn't even a quotation of any particular law in uh, in the, the Torah. Um, he's blending together well laws that occur. I'm just looking at my notes here real quick in in Numbers chapter 30, Leviticus 19. And Deuteronomy chapter twenty-three, and all of those are laws that begin well. If somebody is going to make a vow, then they should do it this way, and they shouldn't do it that way. So, uh, what are and what are laws and oaths all about in the biblical world? They're about somebody drawing on God's reputation <laughs> in order to bolster the truthfulness of some claim or promise that they're making in the in the present moment. And so really it's about dragging God <laughs> uh, and uh, using God's reputation to like underwrite my reputation in this given uh, moment. And that's usually like the, the types of exchanges that um, people take on oaths for. So in other words, there aren't any commands in the Torah to say you should make oaths. What the laws of the Torah do is they recognize that people make oaths um, and they drag God into, th- into their whatever, their issues. Like, I promise I'll pay you back. I swear to Yahweh. As Yahweh lives, I will pay you back. And so the, I think the bigger question that Jesus is stepping back and asking, just like he does with divorce, is like, why are you dragging God into this in the first place? <laughs> like, if you're going to pay the guy back, just pay him back and say that you will pay him back. Um, mm-hmm. So I th- it seems to me Jesus is there actually doing something similar to what he's doing in divorce, which is in really what the laws of the Torah were about, which is mitigating, like people are gonna make oaths, um, just like Moses in in that law in Deuteronomy, is men are gonna divorce, Israelite men are gonna divorce their wives. So uh, God enters into that human practice and tries to mitigate it, like it's like damage control, as it were. And the laws point towards that. At least that's at least how I currently understand that case study. Okay. Yeah.
0: So, I'm I'm kind of gauging through the the damage control part. How does that yeah. makes How does that work into the New Testament? Um, mm. Now that we're in the New Testament, are we going to have less divorces? Um, You know, like after mm, the New Covenant, because yeah. in my experience, it really hasn't changed too much. People's mm. hearts are still hard. So I guess mm-hmm. part of this question is: Is there an allotment with Moses that mm. isn't <laughs> an allotment with Jesus? Like, does that change somehow? And then, mm. I guess the question would then, I guess, also follow up: How, how does our hearts? like really change all that much. I mean, I heard you say like there's something wrong with the human heart and all of these laws are given and the laws can't change the human heart. But now that we have Jesus, Jesus can deal with the heart. And I go, yeah, I see that. But then at the same time, I see a lot of Christians who seem to be deemed righteous by faith. They really believe Jesus is their savior and their Lord, and they are still wrestling with sin. So how, how do we, how do we extrapolate? Like how, how, how different really is it from old covenant <laughs> to new covenant Exactly. Sorry. Yeah, no, if, you, uh, if, you no. could, if you could
2: <laughs> figure out that theological,
0: uh, that's an easy yeah, one to lay out totally. for you, softball.
2: Oh, uh, that's a wonderful. I mean, these are mega, mega questions. That one in particular, you know, I, followers of Jesus have been sorting out for 2,000 years and a lot better, better minds than my own. I'll, I'll say that real quick. Um, so maybe here's, yeah, here's one set of reflections on that. Um. The whole premise of the biblical story is it begins with the Garden of Eden as God desires to share existence, responsibility, and partnership with his image-bearing creatures um, in caring for creation, representing God's rule and wisdom and care over creation. Um, So humanity strikes out at that, to use a baseball metaphor, (laughs) I don't play baseball. Um, And I didn't like it when I did play baseball when I was a kid. I don't know why I'm using that metaphor. I'm just going to keep going. So um, uh, humanity strikes out. um, And after multiple cycles of uh, the generation striking out, God enlists this guy Abraham, uh, calling him out from among the nations. And he enlists Abraham and says, man, I'm going to bless you. And how about you be my covenant partner? Just do what I say and things will go great. And Abraham consistently doesn't do what God says, but sometimes he does. He, it's like both, right? And that's what makes uh, Abraham and Sarah such compelling characters is sometimes they really blow up, sometimes they don't. That pattern continues with Isaac. That pattern continues with his son Jacob and then the sons and so on. And so the Hebrew Bible uh, is really interested in, in showing in, in, as an expose on human nature, you know, <laughs> that we are like glorious image of God beings capable of mirroring God's love and justice and character here on earth. And at the same time, we are so stupid and so short-sighted and limited and we're bad judges between good and evil and we're selfish and we're often really violent um, and unpredictable and really shouldn't be trusted in most circumstances. (laughs) And that's all, like both of those are true. And so the story of Israel as God's covenant partner is just that, scaled up to the size of a whole tribe, and then and then a nation. And so the prophet Moses himself said, "If this partnership's ever going to work, it's going to be because God circumcises the heart of His people." He uses a vivid metaphor of like a cutting away. There's something that needs to be removed, uh, so that there can be this renewal <clears throat> of the human heart. And so once the Israelites, over the course of centuries like continue uh, to suffer the consequences of them not living by the terms of the covenant partnership. Um, And they end up in exile in Babylon. Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, all in their own ways, come along and say, man, if there is ever going to be a human partner who is really so in sync with God's will that what they desire is what God desires, it's going to be a recreation of, of the human family. It's going to be a recreation of the human heart and mind. It's going to involve God's own life-giving presence. Um, As Ezekiel said, like um, putting God's spirit inside of us so that what we desire and do is what God desires and does. And that's all that they can imagine is that would be the only way forward. Isaiah says that there will be a king coming from the line of David who is so infused with the spirit he just naturally does the will of God and that that one is gonna lead the way um, and begin a whole new renewal movement within Israel. So that is what Jesus is saying, is he's launching in the gospel according to Matthew. So uh, your question, Josh, then is, okay, so if he really did that among Israel and then that movement spread and went you know, multi-ethnic in the family of Jesus and the story of Acts, and now here we are today on the other side of the planet, Um, it sure seems like our hearts and the portrait of Jesus' followers throughout the centuries are about as a mixed bag as the story of Israel in the Hebrew Bible, Uh, which is true. That's true. Uh, So it raises the big question of like, well, did anything really change then? Like with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, did anything really change with the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost? Because Jesus sure seemed to think so, like that something fundamentally changed. And it seems like all the apostles uh, thought something fundamentally uh, changed there too. And so I, I think I'll, I'll, I'm, um, i all I'm, I could just tell you like my own experiences of like trying to follow Jesus and successes and failures. And I feel pretty much about in the same spot as Abraham, <laughs> maybe batting a little less. I don't know. Uh, you have to ask, ask my wife, um, but. Uh, or Pharaoh. I, or Pharaoh. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I think. Sorry, <laughs> bad joke. Yeah, Bronco, you know, I, I, I think I'm to, I am going to trust Jesus and the apostles that something fundamentally changed w- uh, uh, on Easter and at uh, Pentecost um, that a door opened for humans to make ourselves open to the presence and the Spirit of God to reform the human imagination and the human heart to reform what I desire to become closer to uh, the heart and the w- the will of God than was uh, uh, accessible to, to people pre-Pentecost. Now, can you think of counterexamples? Yes. Can you falsify that? You could probably find a million ways to, to try and falsify that. But I don't know what else to do except to just trust Jesus because I really... My, in like i can all echo with Paul, like in Romans 7, like in my heart, my inner human, I want to do the will of God, even though I don't. Uh, and I often do the things I, I'd say I don't want to do. But I also believe that um, for those in Messiah Jesus, that there is no condemnation. So this is getting us a lot bigger than the Sermon on the Mount. Um, yeah, let me, let like me volley something back to you. Go ahead.
0: Cause, because I think, I, think I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, there's that, that theological principle of already not yet though i mm-hmm. think that could be applied here where the kingdom is here but mm-hmm. we're also waiting for the fullness of the kingdom to come so yes. there is an inbreaking of the kingdom there is something that happens in the human heart but yeah. but that moment that we will no longer wrestle with sin that moment that we will be you know fully transformed known as we're fully known gazing into the eyes of christ being like him as he appears like that that kind of thing happens when the fullness of the kingdom comes so it seems as if yeah. there's some kind of heavenly deposit that is fundamentally different than Old Covenant. And I just want to say yes and amen. But but yeah. I think that that can be explained with an already not yet framework. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. I totally that's just great. took your words to figure that out. So.
2: No, that's great. That's great. Yeah, I I, I should have uh, just said that. <laughs> well, no, no, that was good. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I like I liked your
1: answer better, Tim. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to return us to the to the Servant on the Mount. Try to yeah, uh, focus focus in on uh, a controversial verse. So, Mm. well, Mm. gosh, a couple of controversial verses. One is uh, chapter 5, verse 20, where it's Mm. like, hey, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so some people look at that and they're like, ah, justification by faith. There's the first hint because he's saying like, you know, these guys who everybody thought were mega righteous. Jesus is saying, mm. you got to be mega, mega righteous. You got to be over the top right. You got to be perfect. And then they mm. zoom to 548 where it says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And they're like, see, look, you got to be perfect. Nobody can do that put your faith in Jesus, you'll be justified by faith, etc. So that's what one side says. Then the other side says, no, 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 that's not what he means. Because when he mentioned scribes and Pharisees here, we got to look at it in context later. Chapter six, he's going to, he's going to be all like, yeah, these religious leaders among you, they're praying to show off. They're giving big, long flowery prayers. They're wearing long robes. They're, uh, they're giving it a way to be seen, fasting in a way to be seen. So these guys are actually hypocrites. And so, when I say don't be like the like that, your righteousness needs to
2: mm-hmm.
1: righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, what Jesus is teaching is it needs to be not hypocritical. It needs to be a righteousness that goes down deep into the heart. And so that's mm-hmm. why he's explaining these you know six test cases, as you mentioned, to show mm-hmm. how the righteousness goes uh, deep and, and real, and that it's not this sort of fake thing. And so you have these kind of two sides and maybe there are more arguments uh, than what I've listed, but I'd love to hear your thinking on that.
2: Yeah, that's great. Uh, that's great. I, I, I do think the second view you listed there, I'm persuaded that the second view is more, f- more faithful um, to what Jesus is going after because it, it matches more of what he says in more of the rest of the parts of the sermon and in the Gospel of Matthew as a whole. In other words, Um, the fundamental contrast in the sermon, sorry, one of the main, not the, one of the fundamental contrasts in the sermon is is the connection, or often the disconnect that exists between our outward behavior and our inward motivations. Um, He says in one of the opening Beatitudes, um, how good is life for the pure in heart? Those are the ones who will see God face to face. That's my paraphrase. Um, So purity of heart, which is all about that one's inward desire and motivations have this seamless relationship to our observable behavior and actions. That's a really key theme that he's announcing right there. Um, And it gets brought up again, like you said, in chapter six, where he introduces the word hypocrite, which doesn't mean um, somebody who says one thing and does another. That's what hypocrite means in our language, is you say one thing, but then you don't do it or you do the opposite. In the Bible, hypocrite means somebody who does the right thing, but they do it for the wrong reason or the wrong motivation. And so he highlights that you can give to the poor, you can fast, you can pray, and do it all, which is good and right, but for the wrong motivation. And so he he calls that right motivation, he calls it doing righteousness, uh, which means doing right by God and doing right by by other people. so it seems to me that the case studies, um, the other parts of the sermon and of his teachings are really highlighting what what Jesus is talking about is the fundamental transformation of the human person, the transformation of the human heart and mind, the one that um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Moses were like constantly on about and hoping, trusting that God would do for his people one day, which I think also makes sense of why he talks about that greater righteousness, greater than the scribes and Pharisees, um, is the conclusion to um, what he meant by fulfilling the Torah and the prophets, bringing it to its fulfillment. So, the transformation of the human heart, the fulfilling of the purpose of the laws of the Torah, um, the synchronization, right, the matching of our inner motivations and our outward behavior, these are all kind of different aspects of the same. Same set of ideas, so in that sense, Jesus is a lot. lot he's like a wisdom teacher. He's he's like he's like the, more like the proverbs in that way, like the father beckoning the son, like in Proverbs one through nine, to let Lady Wisdom, um, uh, first of all, search, make it your highest prize, like the like the pearl of great price, um, but then also let her wisdom teach and. Re- Oh,
0: Tim! I think... Oh, we lost you for half a second. Let wisdom oh. do what?
2: Oh, uh, oh, let Lady Wisdom change your life. <laughs> I think there you that's go. What I said. <laughs>
0: that's yeah, <all> we <laughs> It was it was a huge cliffhanger. You were like, "Let Lady Wisdom," and then it just... Oh, man. And oh. I was like, "Oh no!" Yeah. I
2: was yeah. like, is he, "Is he waiting
1: for the balloons? Like he's just waiting to, for the balloons <laughs> to was. sort of that's like provide that yeah. exclamation yeah. point?"
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that um so but but the Pharisees aren't good guys in Jesus' mind. they really are misleading Israel. He calls them blind gods uh later on in the Gospel, so he doesn't have a high view of them, but what he says in chapter twenty three is to his disciples he says like um do do what the Pharisees at least say, don't do what they do, but do what they say <laughs> uh in other words, you know they have they can understand and they can say uh what the will of God might be stated in the Torah. Um, but, but he's actually calling his disciples to live it in a, in a lived way that no current teachers of Israel are, are doing in, in the present. That's
0: interesting because like, you're talking about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the law was given. There was disobedience to the law. In the mm. New Testament, the problem seems to be different in the days of Jesus. They're actually doing the things of the law but their heart still isn't fixed. So the problem of the Old Testament is carried over into the days of Jesus, even with the Pharisees and Sadducees, when you think the law is actually being fulfilled, it's actually being obeyed. Well, it's not really because the heart of the issue is wrong. And and this is probably a good time to talk about the love God, love people kind of commands Mm. in the Mm. Beatitudes. So maybe unpack that for us and talk about how that the law and the prophets like terminate on this, they, that this is the, this is the thing um, and how we are to use that. And, yeah, so, so maybe talk about that. I might have a follow-up question, but maybe mm. I'll just let you know what it is now. So you can maybe take a stab at it if you want. That mm-hmm. idea that some people use this love God, love people as a way to say, I don't follow any other rule in the bible except for this idea and as long as i'm it may even look like i'm breaking a rule in the bible but as long as i can chalk it up to loving people
2: i can get away with it so
0: that would be my follow
2: up. yeah interesting yeah that's a great man um uh, all of a sudden one hour is just not enough time is it (laughs) Um, that's right yeah yeah so yeah later on in matthew jesus is asked by a bible nerd of his day on um, what's the most important command, right? It's a, it's a well-known story. What's the most important command in the Torah? Um, and Jesus proceeds to uh, list two commands and calls them the first greatest command and then the second greatest command. Uh, the first one is from the Shema in Deuteronomy that you shall love the Lord your God with all your uh, heart, soul, mind, and strength, That's Jesus rephrasing. Uh, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19.18. Um, and he's, uh, and he's, he says, like, this is the Torah and the prophets. So what's interesting is that in the Sermon on the Mount, um, loving God and loving neighbor comes up as ideas, but not that short little formulation. Um, he does talk about loving your enemy um, and that loving your neighbor um, as you love yourself involves loving your enemy. And so in one of the case studies, he actually counters the way that uh, Leviticus nineteen eighteen, 18, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. He's counting, when, he, when Jesus says, um, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. That's, that's what he quotes. And he says, and I say to you, and there's no law that says hate your enemy <laughs> in the, right. the last of the Torah. So what he's quoting there is how that law is being interpreted by some of Israel's teachers at the time, and mm-hmm. he counters the current teaching. Um, to uh, expand the definition of neighbor to include even somebody who is your enemy, um, and, and so then, but there's a lot more rabbit holes in that case study, so I won't go any further down it. What's interesting is that um, when he when he talks about I'm here to fulfill the Torah and the prophets, the law and the prophets, and then he quotes from "You should love, you know, your neighbor as yourself." Mm-hmm. Then um, on the other side. In this cool, Matt, the sermon, oh, dude, we haven't talked about the literary design of the Sermon on the Mount. It's so beautiful how Jesus, how this whole speech is crafted. Um, But uh, at the conclusion of the main body of the speech, the last line is Matthew 7, verse 12. It's the golden rule. Um, What would you desire that others should do to you? Do also to them, because this is the law and the prophets. So he brings up the law and the prophets at the beginning of kind of the center of the speech and at the at the conclusion of the center of the speech and here he talks about fulfilling the law and here he talks about doing to others what um, you desire to do to them it's a line that i repeat to my two sons every day multiple times a day (laughs) Um, uh, and it's such a well well well-known rule what is so interesting is there the wording that Jesus chose for the golden rule was directly inspired um, by debates and conversations that rabbis of his time were happening about what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you love your neighbor as yourself, Rabbi Hillel used to say, then you shall not do any harm to him that you would not want done to yourself. Don't do to your neighbor what you wouldn't want your neighbor to do to you. And so Jesus actually does take the love God and love your neighbor um, heartbeat of the laws of the Torah. And he wraps it though in his own creative rephrasings about fulfilling the law and the prophets and about the golden rule here. And both of them have underneath them, their kind of animating heartbeat is a positive desire, which is whatever, whatever I'm engaged in in the moment, It's an opportunity to express my love for God and my love for the the fellow humans around me. So uh, it doesn't seem to me that Jesus is taking that, however, as a replacement um, for the laws of the Torah or even like a condensed summary, like you could summarize all the laws. He says all the laws are fulfilled in this. Um, In in other words, that uh, that love is an, animating energy that will express itself in a variety of different circumstances. So various, you know, that you could never make enough laws to cover all the circumstances. And so as long as you have loving God and loving neighbor as your heartbeat, um, you have the essence of the thing. But um, there is a lot more that needs to be said to give us wisdom for how it would apply in this situation. How does it apply when a Roman soldier forces you to carry his bag a mile? How does it apply when you're being sued? How does it apply when you're in a really difficult marriage? Um, how to right and and that's what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is kind of working out these case studies um, and examples of what it means to love God and neighbor. So I, I don't know if I'm directly responding to the heart of your question, though, Josh.
0: It's fantastic. No, I think that's good. I think you answered both.
1: Yeah. Okay. So. I was going to ask you about the retaliation section because I'm like mm. really curious to know what you mm. think about like, uh, you know, hey, if somebody is like attacking my wife and kids, do I have to be like, or, you know, if they're like attacking one kid, mm. do I, in the spirit mm. of the Sermon on the Mount, have to give them my other kid also? You know, like you yep. go ahead and attack oh my, my whole family, gosh. yeah, yeah. That you know, so dark. Yeah. I know it did. So mm. I, my point is that on a practical yeah. level, it feels really extreme. I really wanted to go there, but gosh, we have five yeah. minutes. So I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to do a toss up here. You can answer either one. All right. The other one is you just said the literary structure of the Sermon on the Mount is gorgeous. (laughs) And I love structure in uh, in scripture and just kind of, because the structure itself communicates. And so, uh, Mm -hmm. man, just, just pick one, (laughs) just pick (laughs) one and go for it, whatever you want. What if I
2: tried to do both? If you want me to Go try and do it, both, yeah. I'm trying to be really yeah. concise. Um, sure. I, I, well, at least I'll just say, when it comes to the, to, uh, the, re- the retaliation, um, uh, I think it's really important to recognize the historical context in which Jesus uttered those words. I think that's just the main thing I'll say. And whatever meaning I'm going to get out of, uh, don't resist the evildoer, and he talks about the hand slap and the, you know, if somebody forces you to go one mile. He's talking about real situations in the unique cultural setting of living in a Roman occupied um, territory in a first century, more tribal oriented honor shame culture. And in that cultural setting, the the non-retaliation teaching um, is a very, very clear and and powerful uh, statement about how to relate to um, truly unjust uh, structures and situations in, in your own day. So, I just more than I would just invite people, um, I learned most and best from uh, Richard T. France's Matthew commentary, um, mm-hmm. W.D. Davies and Dale Allison's Matthew commentary. Do deep, deep dives into that historical context that transformed uh, a lot of uh, how those sayings at least strike me. Let's. let's what I'll say the first one, <laughs> second one, uh, the literary design of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew, um, more than Mark, Luke, or John, has arranged um, all the material in the Gospel um, by in patterns of three, in patterns of triads, um, from the macro level down to the uh, the micro level, and the Sermon on the Mount uh, is an exquisite case study um, in the in the use of three part design patterns um, to to put together uh, the Sermon on the Mount and how it flows. It begins with an introduction that has the three times three uh, blessings, the Beatitudes, and then uh, three metaphors of the salt, the light, and the city, and that makes up the introduction. It ends with three warnings uh, that Jesus puts in front of his disciples about the wide and the narrow gate, about the two kinds of trees, and then about the two kinds of houses you can build on the sand or the rock. That's the intro and the conclusion. And then the internal part of it um, has three main parts. One is about fulfilling the Torah, um, and then he gives two times three case studies in that, so it makes it kind of a three-part shape. There's the intro about fulfilling the Torah, and then three case studies, and then three case studies. The middle part of it uh, is uh, three examples of doing your righteousness before God and not before people gives... um, uh, excuse me generosity to the poor prayer and then fasting and then uh, there are three movements on how one relates to God and neighbor when it comes to money and difficult relationships and so he has uh, a big block of sections starting in 619 uh, about uh, God how, God and money then uh, about uh, difficult relationships um, and then uh, seven. Uh, oh, about difficult relationships, and then um, uh, and then the golden rule, sorry, is the one at, at the end there. So three three parts, three big parts. The middle part has three parts. Each of those parts has three parts. And then dude, the middle part of the middle part of the middle part, which is the case studies about do, doing righteousness before God and not before others. Remember, there were three. It was given mm-hmm. to the poor, prayer, and then fasting. Prayer is the longest one. It's the middle. One, and then he has a little intro statement, and then he has a little concluding statement. And the center of that piece is the Lord's Prayer, which is two sets of three lines each. So the Lord's Prayer has literally been placed at the center of 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 the center. <laughs> of, uh, wow. of the whole of the whole sermon. And there are even some people who think some scholars who think that um, member the Moses stuff. From that we began with you know like an hour ago, um, that uh, that is, as it were, the summit of uh, Jesus's Messianic Torah, as it were, the summit of the Messianic Mount Sinai that Jesus is here bringing uh, there at the middle, which is all about communing with God uh, through prayer, Amen. just like Moses did on top of the mountain. I'm, I, don't, I don't know if I buy that one, but it, it's pretty cool to imagine nonetheless. No, but you can't argue with the fact that the prayer is at the center, the center of the center of the center ah so beautiful i love that it's like
0: satisfying <laughs> it's like a good it really is yeah. I, I want
1: to say say law after that yeah, so uh tim uh thank you so much for joining us we're at that time five o'clock so uh time for us to wrap up the show i i i could throw it out and say if there's any any sort of nutshell any uh any sort of closing remark that you would like for our viewers to have or josh if you mm-hmm. do Uh, um we can uh maybe share quick nutshell and uh and then we'll wrap up so josh do you have anything
0: uh man i just i think the sermon on the mount is a kind of beautiful story about the inbreaking of the kingdom and the kind of principles that the kingdom is going to live by forever and ever so Mm. yeah it is an inbreaking of the kingdom and the laws or rules of that said kingdom um Mm. but but as we live in this present age is an opportunity for us to kind of look outside of ourselves right um you know those who are pure in heart will see god well, I want to see God, but I'm just not pure in heart. Like, I'm just, I'm not there. So it makes me look outside of myself for righteousness. It, it in some sense, is a crushing weight, but it's a crushing weight that I can look to Christ to fulfill because I, I just haven't. So in some sense, the it gives us a great rubric for what God wants his kingdom to look like right now. But it also gives us a beautiful opportunity to look outside of ourselves and look to Christ who fulfills the law, um, and, and perfectly obeys the law. So, uh, as much as that is our aim and we're striving for perfect love of God and perfect love of neighbor and, and perfectly pure hearts and, and perfectly poor in spirit. Um, and, and literally one of the commandments in the Beatitudes, you know, uh, uh, be perfect for your heavenly father is perfect. Like it's pretty high <laughs> standard, right? So, so <laughs> as much as it is a standard of what the kingdom looks like, um, also realize and have grace for your heart that, this is something that Christ fulfills, and, and your righteousness isn't tied up in your ability to perfectly fulfill all of these commands as much as it is we're actually leaning on Christ's power and Christ's mm. spirit to empower us to fulfill these commands for his name and glory. So uh, that's, that's a little sermonette there at the end. Uh, Tim, mm-hmm. any closing thoughts?
2: Mm. Um, uh, Two two thoughts and more. These are just things that if you're watching or listening, you could do with the sermon to take your thoughts deeper. One is to commit it to memory. Um, It was designed to be easy to remember, which is why we're still talking about its most famous line still today. Uh, It's actually not that hard to commit to memory. If you work at it, it's been designed to be easy to memorize and it will do something to you if you really get these words of Jesus into your heart. Um, Another thing that you could do with the sermon is after memorizing it to then take a thoughtful read through the rest of um, Matthew's account of Jesus's story, the Gospel of Matthew, and look for all the places where Jesus speaks or lives out his own values and teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. And at least I have discovered that it seems like Matthew has given us the life of Jesus, like you were saying, Josh, as the perfect embodiment Not just an illustration but as the embodiment of the kind of human he called his followers to be because he was that on our behalf and so studying matthew to see how the sermon on the mount looks like in one particular human life that's the story of jesus that comes in the rest of matthew's account wow
1: you're motivating me to maybe want to memorize the sermon on the mount
2: Hmm, i'm just saying
1: yeah
2: (laughs) i'm just saying cool
1: guys Uh, Tim, thanks again for coming on the show and everybody else, thanks uh, thanks so much for joining us and uh, make sure you hit that like and subscribe button share this episode around if you can Uh, don't forget and hit those links in the description Uh, you can support us through Patreon or PayPal or uh, also consider following our newsletter Uh, this week we have an extra episode on Tuesday Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, IHOP situation a little bit and then on Wednesday, we're going to continue responding to the Cessationist documentary. So uh, stay tuned. More episodes coming out this week. Thank you guys so much for joining us. God bless you and have a great week.
0: I want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there...